This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Hype. Ugh. Hype. What happened? I expected so much more from you. Until a few months ago, when air started going out of our current technology bubble, we were living in a golden age of hype. There was some truly, truly remarkable, I would argue beautiful hype going on, especially about things like AI and cloud computing and like crypto. But now there's been a shift, and a lot of so-called tech companies have lost a bunch of stock value. Netflix is down nearly 70% from its heights, and e-commerce company Shopify is down over 70%, and they are not alone. Investors are starting to request that companies be profitable, and startup leaders are like, EGAD, they want us to be profitable? What are they going to ask from us next? That we have a sustainable business model? Holy smokes! Yes, it's hard times in Hypeland. Hard times indeed. And I never realized that it would be this extraordinarily deeply satisfying to see. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves here. There's still plenty of technology hype around, and it will continue to be with us. Thus, sadly we must continue to try to understand it better. And one pleasurable entry in this understanding hype genre is a book 
by science journalist and STS PhD student Gemma Milne. It's called Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. The book examines a series of areas in science and technology, from artificial intelligence to fusion power to cures for cancer, and the outlandish claims made about their potentials. We also talk about ways in which people can learn to see through hype and have more realistic perceptions. I had a lot of fun talking to Gemma. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Thanks so much for talking to me today. No worries. I'm excited to be here, Lee. So uh, Smoke and Mirrors is a neat book, and it covers a subject near and dear to my heart. So when you uh, were talking, you know, when you were out there promoting it and talking about it with strangers, what did you tell them it's about and what what were you up to with it? Sure. Um, Well, it's about hype, right? So it's about narratives and kind of promises and idealism. Um, that you hear about in pre- predominantly in the science and technology space, which is the area that I'm most um, interested in. It's also it's also a book that has nine chapters and they each are on a different area of science and tech. So some people say to me, oh, I thought it was going to be all about hype and kind of theory of hype, but I found it was um, actually kind of had these in-depth, uh, almost like long read articles about different areas of yeah. science and tech. And some people love that part of it and some people love more of the theory of hype stuff but I wanted to kind of strike the balance between the two and not do a sort of academic hype book but also give something that somebody could I don't know start to follow some of those areas of science and tech in the press um read the chapter and then feel empowered to be able to go on and actually I don't know have an opinion on stuff yeah. or um read an article and be like ah that's that thing that I read about um because I think a lot of stuff when you're popular science when you're reading about it it's very kind of basics you know this is how a volcano works or this is how a battery works or whatever but that doesn't help you understand an article that comes out in the guardian or the ft or the wall street journal about some recent investment or about a law that's recently come out or something like that so i wanted to write something that kind of allowed people to feel a bit more empowered to play a part in in kind of what's going on now in science and tech, but also to reflect on the role of hype in society. Yeah, I think you you strike the balance nicely. So how do you, you you have a pretty simple definition of hype, but like you don't feel like you, I mean, you didn't overly specify it, which is good, I think. So how do you, how do you define it? Oh, goodness. Well, I actually kind of use an uh, analogy, which is why it's called Smoke and Mirror. So I think about it in terms of magic. Um, so I have this in the in the book. So if you think about going to a magic show, you walk in, um, you go into the, I don't know, the theater and you are by being there and knowingly, unless you've accidentally walked into a room, not realizing it's a magic show, you are consenting to be fooled. So you're saying to the magician, it's cool for you to try and trick me. And you might try and work out how they're tricking you and, and kind of work out the sleight of hand, or you might just enjoy the show, but either way, you're consenting. Um, if you're being lied to, you could say that that's non-consensual fooling. Mm-hmm. So you're being fooled and you don't realize it's happening. With hype, I think about it as a thing that can result in accidental fooling. Um, so it's it's a marketing tactic. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that's used to capture attention. It's not there for understanding 
It's not there to convey information in a really detailed way. It is a tool that is used to capture somebody's attention, stop them in their tracks. And sometimes that can result in accidental fooling, misunderstanding, um, misreading. Um, You know, it can, well, as we know with headlines, it can result in people getting the wrong end of the stick or or actually getting, not even just uh, having a little bit wrong, getting the total uh, incorrect, uh, I guess, understanding of a thing. Um, so that's kind of how I think about how I think about hype, and it's not about it being. I didn't want to write about it and say this is a terrible thing. We need to banish it because it's, yeah. it's kind of not possible. Yeah. Um, but more try and understand the mechanics of it and how it works, the history of it, and, and kind of what it looks like nowadays. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Do you? I don't think I saw you ever seen Harry Frankfurt's definition of bullshit before. Oh, I think I read about this in um, Carl and um, Jevin's book. Um, was it called Calling Bullshit? I think they write ah, about it. Okay. Remind me of com- yeah, no, I mean... We, we also interviewed them for Radical Science. And we were talking about it. Yeah, I mean, he has it as a kind of, you know, it's not lying. It's not the truth. It's kind of speech meant to persuade and move. So sometimes, That's sometimes it. it can line up with the truth. And sometimes it's totally false but it's really speech meant to move you more than than do either exactly yeah yeah exactly and and i think that's when you when you realize that hype is there simply to get you to stop in your tracks um you what it forces you to do is to then kind of look a bit further um and it and it allows you to kind of um get rid of the illusion right so it's it's the, the thing about magic is it completely falls down when the illusion is broken and it's the same with hype when you know that it's an illusion whether it's you know an illusion that's to make you feel super excited and that's fair enough because the thing is exciting yeah. um or not the point is is that when you can kind of get past that barrier you can then start to go okay what are they actually saying what does this actually mean and what are the actual implications of this or how do i feel about this beyond the emotion that they are trying to target <laughs> by using particular words or images or so on and so forth. So, you know, it sounds like a very simple and obvious thing to say. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it hype propagates suggests to me that that obviousness is not something that we remember on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in. Um, uh, so how'd you... How did you start working on this book? I mean, you're a doctoral researcher now. You were did you identify as kind of science journalist before that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the think even thinking about doing a PhD was after the book was already out, so that wasn't wasn't originally part of the plan. That was more a COVID thing. Um, oh, I finally have time. Let's go do a PhD. <laughs> um, but and also wanting to build on the topics of the book. Um, but yeah, it came from a I don't know a long career of having various different um playing different roles in the hype um journey shall mm-hmm. we say so um you know i worked in advertising which is of course where hype is created that is you know the business of hype is is advertising mm-hmm. um and for good and for bad mainly for bad um, <laughs> but uh, so it was a really interesting i guess um schooling in what it means to try and capture attention and I found that when I, before I did that, you know, I did a maths degree and I was very interested in science and tech, but, uh, you know, I thought let's go and give this um, advertising a go because I also have sort of art side that I wanted to try out. But when I was there, it made me think a lot about how science is communicated and 
I was basically trying to think of how science could kind of learn from the world of advertising in order to, you know, get messages out in a more interesting yeah. way. So, um, you know, I remember going to like a science communication meetup um, that was in London and they were all like, why are you here? You work in advertising. I'm like, I'm literally paid to communicate things <laughs> like that. That is like my actual job. Yeah. Like, you know, no, no offense to some of you, but you just do this on the site. Like this is a literal entire industry. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure there must be some you know crossover here so i found it quite funny that people weren't kind of trying to take advertising 101 and use it for for good quote unquote so you know know your audience what's the single message all that sort of stuff so i kind of got interested in science communication in that respect um and then as with a lot of people that kind of go into science communication they become a little bit cynical probably very cynical about the the very scientism element of a lot of science communication out there and then so on and so forth. Um, but worked in advertising, ended up in a job that I was doing um, like corporate innovation stuff. So I was speaking to a lot of startups. Mm. So obviously I was hearing all their pitches and going to conferences. And if you're going to tech conference, which I'm sure you've been to many, Lee, you know what it's like with these kind of, you know, 10 second elevator pitch oh, yeah. to sell us your SaaS tool for <laughs> tracking tractors or something i don't know um so i was kind of like in that world and was reflecting on this like what is this hype thing what this has so much power at the same time i work in an industry that creates it how do i feel about that Mm. um i ended up getting made redundant they shut the innovation team very innovative uh, (laughs) move by the big company and uh and i thought let's give this freelance journalism Mm. thing a go and then obviously when you're a journalist you're receiving pitches all the time and your job is literally to try and see through hype Um, but not to just kind of put your hand up and say that's rubbish I'm not even going to listen to you because you've used hype to capture my attention but rather to try and dive that little bit deeper Mm -hmm. so I don't know I guess the book came from a long time of thinking about my own role responsibility complicity in hype and and both as a journalist writing about companies and science and tech, um, but also in the advertising space, but also reflecting on my frustration with people not understanding things properly, particularly when it came to deep tech and science, which is kind of my area of interest. Um, So, you know, it started off being this kind of angry book, but the more I thought about it, it was like, actually, I think there's a bit more to this than just being like, you know, don't read the Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But more kind of, it's quite, you know, hype is very interesting as a kind of, I don't know, invisible hand or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. So your your book examines nine areas, as you said. Uh, they are food, cancer cures, batteries, fusion energy, commercializing space, quantum computing, brain computer interfaces, AI, and astrobiology. Which one of those areas did you dive into first when you were when you were starting to work on the book? Um, it was quantum computing was my first. Oh one. man. Um. Yeah, I mean, I well, I just happened to be interested in it. I was covering that um, in my writing mm-hmm. at the time. I'd been commissioned to write a few pieces about quantum computing. I went to a quantum computing startup conference and uh, didn't understand half the things anyone was Did saying. They understand I don't think it? anybody. <laughs> no, see, this is the thing. It was really interesting. It was like the person presenting understood it, but the person who was on after wouldn't understand what the person before was yeah. saying. It was very like siloed. It was. It was. It was a great conference. It was very enlightening. Um, from a sort of sociological perspective yeah. <laughs> but anyway um, so yeah I was I was already writing about that anyway and when the sort of idea for the book came up and I was I was matched with an agent and so on and so forth um, 
well, you'll know this with nonfiction writing, you you write a proposal and it's that kind of delicate balance between you don't want to spend tons of time doing tons of research to do a proposal for it to then be rejected. Yeah. Um, but equally, you also have to write something good enough to get a book deal. Um, so just because I already had written on quantum computing, it was kind of the quote unquote easier <laughs> one to start with. Also, I figured if I could get a mainstream publisher to buy a book that has a sample chapter on quantum computing i'm pretty sure they could buy yeah, anything yeah 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 me. um but also quantum computing as as you know um is has a really interesting recent history with hype yeah. um so you know i i wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit and um you know it's sort of everybody wants to know what it is but equally doesn't want to go into huge depth <laughs> trying to understand quantum mechanics so right. i figured it was a the timing was good, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I love that chapter. Um, it's quantum is always one of my kind of favorite go to examples of hype. And I can't tell you how many bad undergraduate student papers I've had to read on quantum over the years. I mean, it's oh, just no. torture. Um, so maybe I mean, I, why don't we talk, say a bit more? Why don't I mean, say, you know, in your kind of, you know, the simplest version you want to play with, like what quantum is and why do you think it's been surrounded by hype for so long? Because I feel like it's at least 10, maybe more like 20 years at this point. You know, it, it just kind of remains a bubble. Yeah, I think my my theory on why it's kind of why why it's got a lot of hype about it is it's both got this aura of being really difficult to explain and understand which arguably it yeah. is you know it is if you go into the real depths of it it is difficult in the same way that understanding how any computer works right. or how a car works or anything is very yeah. difficult when you go into the depths of the, the detail but quantum mechanics of course particularly in a popular science context has this aura of being this like super difficult thing and, and, and all that jazz yeah. um and i think people get caught up with it being so difficult to explain, but it's also got this really compelling, simple um, promise, mm. hyped up promise yeah. um, around being, you know, super fast computing, which is very easy to understand. Um, and particularly a lot of the narratives around this idea that you can, you know, do multiple things at once at the same time, which is an incorrect understanding of, of quantum computing, but that's a lot of time what's written about mm. it and i when i first started writing about it i'm guilty for also jumping onto that you know that that hype um narrative because it is an easy way quote unquote of explaining quantum mm. computing this idea that you know a computer does things in a linear fashion one after the other but a quantum computer can take multiple things and do it all at once that's a very simple compelling idea particularly when you start saying you know ai needs more computing yeah. power in order to do things so if we pair it with quantum computing yeah, yeah. then we can the singularity have is awesome just AI, on the horizon you know? i know right so it's like both extremely complicated so people don't feel empowered enough to question yeah. it um but at the same time it's got these very simple compelling ideas um which are which are really exciting particularly when you pair them with other hyped up technologies like ai um but uh, alongside that there's also been um I mean, like you said about that conference, nobody understood what was going on. Within the sector, there, it's it's sometimes difficult to really assess things properly. Yeah. Um, so when I was interviewing people for the chapter, um, I interviewed um, Scott Aronson, who's one of the like, main people, sort of quantum computing celebrities, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, super obviously knowledgeable in the space, has been in it for years and years and years. 
Um, he we had a great interview. He was really really helpful. Um, but even when I said to him, you know, what startups should I be paying attention to and which ones shouldn't I? He was like, frankly, I find it difficult to assess this because they're all doing completely different things. It's also yeah. specific, and you can't possibly keep on top of everything. So you've got this problem where people within the sector are all trying to sell stuff, right? Um, particularly from a startup space. But even the experts are finding it difficult to assess. Um, so it's quite easy to capture attention if you've managed to have like a cool, interesting narrative. Um, but it takes perhaps quite a while to um for things to be debunked. And we saw that with with D Wave. That's the kind of famous example in the quantum computing space. Um, a company which you know is still going nowadays, and I would argue is doing well because of the self fulfilling prophecy of their hyped up narratives of. 10 years mm-hmm. ago but they um they kind of oversold and kind of didn't correct people when they got it wrong shall yeah. we say um when they were saying about what it is that they were creating with their quantum computers and um it, you know it's a difficult one as well because the the other thing that's worth paying attention to is them the, the sort of counting of qubits as well so again because there's a difficulty with understanding and tracking the field this sort of pseudo measurement of progress has mm-hmm. emerged which is like how many qubits does the computer have and so you'll see the press releases like we've made it to like 50 qubits or we've made it to 100 qubits or so on and so forth and that is not enough it doesn't tell you enough about how good the quantum computer is and that's what D-Wave did, they were like, we've got, you know, over a thousand qubits years ago. And folk were like, that's, how's that possible? Yeah. But, you know, they managed to get a lot of investment as a result. They did, you know, they did this sort of press release train where they were counting the qubits and it was a thing to follow. It was almost gamified. <laughs> yeah. So, um, again, it's it's these sort of oversimplified ideas that people don't feel confident enough to question. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, it's a hypey hype area. People want to invest and D-Wave got a lot of investment yeah. as a result. So. And they're still here as a result, right? Well, yeah. I mean, they now have technology which is useful for some applications. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think as well what's happened in the sector is that it's become very, um, like the promise of what businesses can get from it um, in recent times has been a real part of the narrative. So it's not just been this kind of basic science nerdy area um it's now how can you do amazing ai right right? that's that's the thing it's like how can you solve these optimization problems how can you you know do more difficult computation and of course um not just huge companies like google or not a company nasa Mm -hmm. um are wanting to invest in those kind of technologies because it is genuinely useful to some degree of what they're trying to do but you're then capturing smaller businesses um who arguably don't necessarily um have the in-house talent to properly critique it yeah <laughs> but um but they understand well i should be doing stuff with ai right, right. so <laughs> i should probably look into this area as well so yeah. it's a it's a difficult one but i think you know d-wave got the investment and they end up building something good as a result and it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy not an ethical one though in my opinion is um <laughs> Is one winner of quantum computing just basic science? I mean, are scientists happy with this this hype? Yeah, I mean, this was part of the argument I made in the chapter. I was sort of saying um, you've got this sort of delicate point that we're in where, yes, basic science has massively, um, I guess, 
you've benefited from this hype because you've got a lot of people investing in labs. You've got um, people like Microsoft funding and creating entire swathes of labs across different universities, um, sometimes buying labs and bringing them in house, which is, you know, a separate issue, but still the money's there and there's a lot of um, good research being funded by by hype, Mm -hmm. arguably. Um, Where I guess I worry is, you know, it's it's the same thing as usual. When's the bubble going to burst, right? When is the sort of... um, the people who are investing in this want going to want the return because as we all know basic science a doesn't always give you what it is you're looking for from an application perspective but it's also super super slow yeah. um and that's the one thing with quantum computing is that there's there's many things that are arguably not possible to do like we can't get rid of all noise for instance like that's that's sort of your current understanding mm-hmm. um but you know you've got a lot of idealistic people funding it hoping that we'll be able to create these you know all singing, all dancing computers that can do amazing things with AI or whatever else down the line. So it's, I think it's this kind of people within the basic science community, within quantum computing, were part of creation of yeah. hype over the years. You know, they've been lobbying for, you know, more investment and more interest and more business interest, going, this is the thing that can be applied for business because they know that that's what gets grant right, approvals right. Um, accepted, right? right? So, um, there's this kind of complicity in creating these hype bubbles, but then going, now they're sort of going, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's, that's not actually really what it right, is. Right, ah, right. What do we do? Now? <laughs> um, and so there's a sort of, you know, my, is that whole thing with the AI sort of hype cycles and the AI winters. It's like, are we going to have a quantum computing mm. winter at some point? Um, that's kind of my, my question, open question that I, I ask in the book. I think that we will. Um, so yes and no, they're, they're benefiting from current investment, but, long term who knows yeah i really liked your um your chapter on food because that wouldn't be like if i was going to list like the hyped science and technology issues it would not be on my initial list but it was like really clear like all the examples you gave of like multiple hyped technologies around it Mm. um Mm. so why why do you think food is like a why was it for you like a fun example to play with in the book to bring it in well, I was thinking about, um, frankly, it was just what am I interested yeah. in? And I'm I'm very interested in the agri-food tech sector yeah. um, and agri-food tech startups. Um, I've been to quite a few conferences um, at the time, which were actually really interesting and brilliant and fascinating mm-hmm. um, in many ways um, that had a lot of the sort of agri-food tech innovation uh, there. And I felt that it was also this really intriguing sector where um i felt out of most of the areas that i covered and basically that you know each chapter is basically these are all the things that i covered as a journalist mm-hmm. um out of all of them i felt that it was the one that was most full of really nice well-meaning oh yeah yeah even more so than cancer mm-hmm. like th- this i think people who a lot of people who come from farming backgrounds mm-hmm. and and are then kind of learning about startups and innovation and technology they, they're sort of I don't want to say they're idealistic because I think that's that's obviously too grand a statement but I think that there's real um there's a real energy mm-hmm. in that sector around genuinely trying to make things yeah. better from a climate perspective from a sustainability in terms of feeding people yeah. perspective from a health perspective um from a treating uh 
you know farmers in non-western countries better perspective like all yep. that sort of stuff so there's a lot a lot of really great stuff in there but at the same time there's also a lot of like as there is in many um of these kind of idealistic places like band-aid over gaping wound yeah. ideas and so things like vertical farming for instance is one that was one of my biggest bugbears um because it was often sold with this very kind of save the world perspective mm-hmm. like um you know we're, we're killing the soil and we're killing the planet so let's like grow lettuce in a shipping container and <laughs> charge loads of money for it you know it, like it, it it just doesn't it doesn't really compute but it's sold in this way and so for me it felt like a really intriguing place where there was loads of hype but it was almost like allowed because people were going we know you're trying yeah yeah <laughs> and and so this kind of like we can save the mm-hmm. world thing was very um inherent to those kind of spaces that i was in and there there was an element of truth in it too with the sort of things they're working on because they are working on trying to feed people which of course is um you know important uh, a thing that's yeah it's important yeah, that's a bit it's a good word for it i was trying to say something more intelligent but yeah it's just important um but i do think that there is a lot of um there is a lot of hype around those um technologies and real interest so for instance like lab grown meat is, yeah. is an area that gets tons of coverage in the science and tech and mainstream press um much like ai much like space it's got that same sort of bombastic this is going to be the next big thing yeah. and it's also going to save the world mm-hmm. so that that was kind of why i was interested but i also felt it was something that um you know i was kind of shocked when i went to my first like farming tech conference um how little i'd actually thought about where my food came from yeah um and, and i mean that was obviously you know there's i think in recent years there's been a lot more focus on particularly from this climate and sustainability perspective um you know veganism is obviously a huge thing mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a lot of documentaries and focus on not eating fish for mm-hmm. instance or or you know i think seaspiracy was that recent one on netflix so there's a lot of conversation about it but i felt you know i was like why isn't it why aren't we thinking about our food so much why is it not covered mm-hmm. in the way that other things are particularly from a science and tech perspective you know things like chemical um fertilizers and stuff why is that not getting the same coverage as other areas of yeah. science that arguably are not really as important for people's day-to-day lives so um it was a sort of challenge to try and write about food being such a huge topic but at the same time i want to try and capture this you know tech will save the world tech will feed us um narrative that's really prevalent in these kind of startup tech science food spaces yeah one of the themes i i really liked in that chapter um is something that applies to other areas of life too but i mean part of what you're looking at with these multiple startups and different technology ideas is this kind of we've made food so cheap and you know and that kind of like shapes the way we consume food in a lot of ways and there's this fantasy that we're just going to be able to like through technological change, like keep that boat going yeah. in that way. Yeah. And and like, you know, in reality, we, as you say in the book, like we, we actually just need to pay more for food. Um, mm-hmm. But that's like mm-hmm. a, that's a harder message to sell than like, oh, there's some other technology going to come along to like save us from what yeah. we've built. Right. Yeah. I mean, the tech will save us narrative is the sort of um, getting you off the hook. Yeah. Narrative it's a nicer one to um, want to engage in. Um, and it's one that doesn't make you feel guilty. 
Yeah. Um, which a lot of the the coverage around food does make people feel guilty, particularly meat eaters. When you're reading about, you know, you shouldn't be eating meat. It's kind of like, well, I really like mince and bolognese. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Does that mean I can't have that? I don't like corn's a bit weird. I don't want to eat that. So you know, it's it's a right. guilt thing. Um, and it's the same with you know, oh, don't um buy from Tesco. Like go to a local farmers yeah. market, and you're like. I've got my kids to take to school and I've got to like get to my job. Like I only have time to go to one supermarket. I don't have time to go to the butcher and then the fishmonger. Mm. Well, you wouldn't, you're not eating fish or meat anymore. I don't have time to go to the farmer's market (laughs) to just get vegetables um, and then go, you know, to the supermarket just for my essentials, all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of kind of um, difficult truths, I suppose, um, that that it's the only way forward, frankly, as we're hearing in uh, a lot now. Um, more so than we did in years gone by. Um, so it's, it's very tantalizing when you then have some Silicon Valley person swoop in and go, yeah, everything's messed up when it comes to the food sector, but don't worry, we've got a solution yeah. here um, that's going to allow us to keep doing what we're doing, um, but do it in a sustainable, healthy, cost-effective, ethical, although it's not a lot of time it's not, yeah. way. So um, it's, it's a really... It's a difficult one because it's really t- pulling on people's um, emotions. It's not just like, oh, I'm interested in science tech. I'm interested in right. read this article. It's like, no, people are searching for answers as to how to live their day-to-day lives, what to buy when they're st- standing in the supermarket aisle. Should I buy Oatly um, even though it's funded by this horrific yeah, yeah. <laughs> private equity group, um, but it's better than like milk and they don't have Alpro today? So is it better to go with normal milk or is it better to go with Oatly funding this horrible company? You know, that people are asking those questions. Yeah. Um, so it's it's tantalizing when you hear these tech will save us narratives. The cancer chapter, I think, is another one that kind of really uh, puts its finger on a spot where, I mean, it really kind of touches us existentially, you know, because this is such a, you know, it's such an issue that hits home for many of us as individuals, uh, if not as mm. cancer survivors, then as people who have loved ones who die from it. So I think you, um, you know, you cover so many examples of hyped, you know, supposed cures that later turned out to be hot air in that chapter. And I also thought you did a really nice job looking at how kind of pharmaceutical companies juke the stats to make their seem like their treatments are just way more effective than they are. But one of the things I liked about in the, and then that chapter is you brought out like the costs of hype in in different ways. So I thought we might use, you know, that in other, I mean, use whatever technologies or cases you want to. But like, what are the costs of hype for us as just like citizens and, you know, as consumers and and stuff? Sure. Um, Well, specific to that chapter, I kind of argue that um, in a bit of a roundabout way, I argue that the cost of hype with respect to cancer therapeutics is we're actually not getting good therapeutics. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that's because we are essentially by keeping propping up the same methods, uh, the same regulatory um, ways of doing things um, and cheering on and being excited um, by arguably very small steps, yeah. we're not... There's, there isn't the incentive for those who are developing um, various different therapies to, frankly, just try harder and mm. do things differently and, and try not create incremental um, therapies that give one person who can afford it an extra two months yeah. 
but instead go um actually we need to try a different way of discovering um you know whatever new methods of doing things are mm. or taking different approaches and so on and so forth so there's there's many different i guess costs of hype and with that it's this sort of you're actually halting progress yeah. um of of a sort by holding up the status quo and and not kind of questioning it um but there's many it's kind of, for me a lot that's really the worst thing about hype it's this idea that by getting excited and cheering on um what we think of as innovative awesome science and tech that's changing yeah. the world ironically we're not getting because of that we're not getting the science and tech that really would change mm-hmm. the world um not to sound hypey myself um and so i guess what i mean by that with with cancer therapeutics is we were hype stops us from having difficult conversations similar to what i'm arguing in the in the food chapter yep. but with um cancer therapeutics by saying oh this company's just um released this new therapy that gives people an extra three months um and you can only get it on certain insurance or actually in the uk you can't get it at all because it's not been approved right. by, by nice because it's actually not that effective right. but if you can raise the funds you can get it um we're not having difficult conversations about well actually is it worth investing in an extra three months worth of life i know if it also means that you're not living very well that's a very difficult conversation to have particularly because you know one person is going to have direct experience either personally or with a close family member other people are going to have experience with themselves or close family members having different you know heart condition and going well that wasn't funded why should cancer get all the attention mm-hmm. you, you're and then of course you've got people just you know fear of death and a lot of western societies death is so taboo we don't even we don't talk yeah. about it we don't plan for it and um, you know it's like oh, i don't want to write a will just in case yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't want to tempt fate all that sort of thing so by not cheering on um advances in cancer um even if the advance actually isn't that great and is super hypey you what you're also doing is sort of people read that as oh you don't want to cure cancer why are you not interested in patients and of course that's not the point you're going i want better i want more Mm -hmm. um i want people who have the funds and the means and so on and so forth to step up um but it's a it's a difficult thing to do when of course you're talking about people's lives um so that's that's for me that's where the sort of real cost of hype specifically with 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 healthcare in general but more most so with cancer with it being the thing that gets the most coverage yeah that makes a lot of sense to me i mean it's even worse over here in the states where like uh the numbers are just like completely gross when it comes to how much we spend on end of life care here Mm. because the insurance companies will pay for it but it's all these like really expensive cocktails that like as you say they like they give us like you know sometimes mere couple more weeks uh and we're spending like hundreds and thousands of dollars on that you know a couple more weeks it's just but and it could be a couple more weeks in a lot of right and for some and for some people that's what they want and fairly you know but for others that isn't worth the cost right and i you know what i found um i guess quite the example that people tend to kind of really go ah i hadn't really realized that when it comes to cancer was about um the way that drugs are approved so it's just like it's either approved or it's not yeah 
there's no like traffic light system with like this is a really effective yeah. um drug this is semi-effective this is not so effective it's just yes or no and particularly in the uk it's it's kind of interesting because of course we have public health here but because we have public health we have a body nice i already mentioned it that decides whether or not something is going to be funded publicly right. or is not so you have drugs that in the u.s you have literal adverts on your televisions which i still boggles my mind when i <laughs> yeah it's not that. great it's just <laughs> nuts um you know saying like take this drug for lung cancer yeah. and then you go to like the uk and the government literally goes we're not funding that because it's not effective enough. Right. um and then you get the tories running on a campaign promise of going oh our nhs is not funding enough of these drugs so we're going to create a new fund that'll fund all the stuff that you can get in the states and then they create this fund that is so ineffective so costly it gets shut down after like three years but they you know they ran on that and they won that was part of the the sort of real campaign when the tories first came in or switched over from labor so it's like the again this sort of promise and like this Thing that's meant to be really good like we're saving lives we're you know we're, we're doing stuff to do with cancer it's like you um you get a pass you yeah know, if you just talk about cancer i mean you god you see it you see it in um biology uh, research all you have to do is mention cancer in your grant application you're you're, <laughs> you're you're gonna do a lot better in terms of getting that approved because of that that's the kind of thing that people want to do and again rightly so understandably so blah 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 yeah. blah but um yeah, we're just really um, not having these difficult conversations, like you said about end of life care in the US and the, the funding for it. It's this is a difficult thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, and again, the sort of the the tech and science titans can swoop in and take advantage of that. Not necessarily deliberately. They're not these evil conspirators. Yeah. People are reading my book and going, "Aha, let's let's make Usually. most of it." Um, <laughs> well, um, but at the same time, that is the reality of what's happening. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you covered two energy technologies in the book, batteries and, and fusion. And one common denominator I see between them um, in what you write is that beyond being overly optimistic about the individual technologies themselves, people often fail to understand how difficult it might be to bring them into existing energy systems. So, you know, what's the relationship between like hype and simplification in your mm, view? Mm. I think that hype propagates because people are looking for simplicity. Um, I, I think that it's dealing with complex ideas. Um, not everyone has time in their day to day life to try and understand the entire, you know, supply and production chain of of battery technology. Yeah. I mean, um, that's that's not something people do day to day for many reasons. <laughs> um, but also, I think it's as we know it's. And we see this in politics, we see this in day-to-day life. It's very difficult to hold conflicting information in your head at the same time. Um, And with complex systems, that is literally what you have to do. You have to be able to go, if we do this, that's really positive. 
But also if we do it, it's pretty negative yeah. <laughs> and I have to work out how I feel about right. it. Um, so, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I wrote this book before the pandemic. It came out in, in April last year, right? The start of, well, not really the start of the pandemic, the start of how it was covered, at least yeah. <laughs> when it started getting coverage um, in, in, uh, in the UK and in the US too. But um, I wrote it with this kind of um, bugbear that people... Um, People, it's a very general thing that mainstream media the way that we kind of the, the things that get published and do well in terms of people taking notice of it tends to be simplified things like when i try and pitch really complicated <laughs> articles um, and say I, I want the hero of this article to be the system not some character yeah. an editor doesn't tend to be interested in it's really really annoying um but actually i think one of the <laughs> one of the good things about the pandemic um is that this idea of trying to understand complex systems and contextualize complex systems is now a standard part of our media like mm-hmm. you had to be able to write about why we didn't have toilet paper and expose the entire supply chain network of toilet yeah. paper but also how toilet paper impacts like health systems and like why teachers can't go to schools is the same reason as we can't have toilet paper yeah. you know that that sort of challenge not everybody rose to it in terms of journalism but a lot of people just had to in order to explain what was going on with the pandemic so in some sense i think the problem of um hype playing into people's need for simplicity Mm -hmm. i hope maybe i'm being idealistic here i hope is slightly reduced um as a result of the what we've all had to try to come to terms with over the past almost two years now um, but, but yeah, hype is a shortcut. It lets you take something really complicated and sort of summarize it into a headline or an emotion. You know, thinking about like automation, robots are going to steal our jobs. That's a very simple um, idea yeah. that people get, that people have an emotional reaction to, but actually is a super complicated, yeah. <laughs> um, complex area. Right. Um, summarized in this one idea and it's the same with with fusion you know the the, it's always going to be 50 years away this kind of butt of the joke thing um is a simple idea which has truth in it but does not by any means give you any door into this super complex system the same with batteries this idea of like trying to find the holy grail of batteries that is light is cheap lasts long charges quickly um is actually not the reality of how the battery world works Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also the idea of looking at the technology itself, like, oh, we found this new chemical. You're not looking at, well, what would happen with factories? Yeah. Would factories have to be completely redesigned right. because you've got this new chemical? Or um, what's it going to do to the price of your whole device the minute the price of the battery changes? That's the whole thing with um, electric cars. The most expensive part of an electric car is the battery. Yeah. So if you can't nail batteries, you're never going to nail electric cars because they're not going to be cheap enough for the market. So I think letting people in and showing frankly the majesty of complexity because i find systems fast i love systems um and i think if you can try and showcase that that's a much more interesting way of understanding the world not a more difficult way um then hype you know again becomes something that's um not desire Mm -hmm. because it doesn't give you that sort of full picture but again you know we all like things to be simple sometimes so yeah it plays into that the other thing I was thinking about when uh, or another thing I was thinking about while reading your book is that um, 
digital technology is kind of a locus of hype today. And you can see it in your chapters because like at least three of them in, you know, there's quantum, there's brain computer inter, uh, interfaces and AI. We can add bad. I mean, we could add other chapters, too, because they have a lot of digital stuff in them. I just wondered, like, it seems to me like plausible that hype tends to surround young industries where there's lots of change more than older industries. I mean, you don't see like a lot of hype around the coal burning power plant industry or the the plumbing industry or the uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just yeah no yeah I wondered like you know digital technology is depending on how you count it it's still young in some ways like especially the app based one is only fifteen years old or something like that you know but it's getting older I mean people are apparently like um, choosing to repair their iPhones more often these days because mm. they don't think the new uh, features are worth it frankly like you know yeah. app you know. This this is an old, you know, that I'm holding up my iPhone. This is an aging thing. It is reaching mature yeah. form. So I just wondered if what you think about that and whether you think like maybe some hype around digital technology will kind of uh, tamper off as as these things age. It's an interesting point. I'm um, I hadn't thought about it in terms of age. Um, I mean, I do think a lot about the difference between digital and non-digital shall we say technology because the, I sort of specified a lot of my coverage and interest is some people call it deep tech which is basically anything that's not digital oh, interesting. <laughs> um, sort uh -huh. of thing um, so I'm specifically inter interested in stuff that's it's not necessarily just hardware but it's stuff that is um, there's a lot of IP involved yeah. um, it's in industry it's part of super it's yeah, it's it's part of complex systems, yeah. um, and whereas digital is not that. Although there'll be things like apps for farmers, yeah. which will be part of the agri-food tech industry, um, to some degree. So, I do think a lot about the difference between them. I actually think that the what's happening in deep tech at the moment is there's a lot more interest in it. Because it's almost like folk have gone, oh God, it's really hard. I'm kind of getting bored of, t you think about the sort of start startup yeah. space, where, where, are the, where are the entrepreneurs getting excited, right. right? There's a lot more investment and people joining um, programs and stuff in deep mm. tech. And I think a lot of that is because they're kind of like, I don't want to say digital is too easy, but it's this sort of thing of like, there's tons of people doing yeah. it. Um, it's super... Um, congested mm. it's arguably quite hard to get investment now because yeah. i think people can see through the hype with much easier with software mm. than they can with something like fusion energy right 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 um but so i think we're at an interesting point in non-digital mm -hmm. because it's the sort of convergence of a lot more interest but not a lot of understanding <laughs> <laughs> um so and and frankly it's like I don't want to say we're running out of ideas with digital, but, you know. Well, something like that, are, though. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's... It feels like the low-hanging fruit have been picked. And, right, and, exactly. And, like, Uber and Lyft and uh, Grubhub and these companies are, there's no road to profitability, it looks like. And it, even if they are, they're not going to be yeah. high-growth industries eventually. Right, exactly. And, I'll, and, and and the thing about deep tech that I also find interesting is the, the way that, um how value works. Yeah. So, 
if you think about a digital technology, you essentially the value of the technology at the time is like the number of yep. users. So it's how good your marketing is, frankly. Right. Whereas with deep tech, um, the value isn't is normally inherent in the IP. Uh huh. And um, you know, I, I have a lot of opinions about IP. I don't I don't necessarily think we should be protecting certain things, and I don't sure. think the way that IP works is 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 necessarily good for the world. But um, the reality of deep tech is that the reason things get funded um, and not all investors, but investors in deep tech are, are happy to wait longer for a return is because the value doesn't dissipate yeah, in the yeah. same way that it can um, in, in digital. So, you know, if you, a lot of times you don't even need marketing in deep tech. You just need the right yep. connections. You need the right, you need a meeting. So hype in digital you need it because you need to be able to essentially capture attention in a bigger way because it's about marketing yeah like you need you the value of these companies is how many people use it um it's just not the same in other industries you don't need people to like really care about plumbing in order to get investment because if you've got a really good technology in the plumbing industry and you speak to an investor who understands the plumbing industry and you sell to a really big supplier who um, is linked up with 60% of the plumbing industry in the U.S., you don't really need yeah. to hype. And you, you just, just made a gazillion need... dollars in... Yeah, way more money. Way more yeah. money than um, than in digital. It's, 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 it's huge. So I suppose hype works in different ways yeah. in, in, these, um, in these spaces. And, you know, obviously my book is, is much more focused on so-called deep mm-hmm. tech, if, if you want to call it that. Um, because I think it's an interesting moment that I think the sort of strategies that have been used in digital, specifically in the startup space, are coming to deep tech. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to get these like we're gonna we're the change makers, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're saving the world. You yeah, know, we're the we're the entrepreneurs, we're the frontier of today, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, in deep tech, in places like AI, I mean, that's obviously been going for a long time, but in, you know, look at bring computer interfaces. You've got Musk there, for God's mm-hmm. sake. Um, look at space. Um, you know, the space industry is not <laughs> going to Mars or the moon. It's like making satellites, yeah. and it has been for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's got this, like, exciting, um, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but in the entrepreneurs of today are that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 not so much musk not so much sorry zuckerberg he's he's not so cool but musk um <laughs> you know I, I think it's that kind of vibe um that has been in times gone by much more linked to digital technology is, is very much so now um in places like biotech mm-hmm. um and even you see it in conferences um you see it in the way that um deep tech conferences now are like have super high production value they they have you know speed pitches yeah, yeah. um they're really fun to go to frankly mm-hmm. um they're ha- you know they're sponsored by interesting companies not sponsored by pipette companies they're sponsored by like gin companies <laughs> um so you know you get like really great drinks at the after nice. party as opposed to like getting to speak to some bod about getting your pipette supplied for your lab you know so it's um i don't know the culture um in deep tech is um more similar to that sort of like Silicon Valley-esque thing. Saying all that, I think people are getting a bit bored of the Silicon Valley thing yeah. too. Um, you know, I, f- it, 
I think you show how out of date you are if you use the language um, of Silicon Valley now. So if you're saying like, you know, let's do a hackathon and there's free pizza, you're a bit like, oh, that's a bit bit 2015, you know, Um, (laughs) which sounds harsh, but yeah, exactly. Let's do an elevator pitch, you know, and you're like, oh, no, no, you're new to this, you know. So it's the same in deep tech, you know, we're starting to like, what, you know, what's going to be not cool mm-hmm. in a year's time that's cool right now um i don't know this is part of the reason why i end up going and doing this phd in scs because i didn't realize there was this area of study that looked at like the culture yeah. of science and tech and and that's always what i suppose i've been interested in without realizing it i always sort of shunned this I, oh i couldn't be a sociologist i would have to you know i did a maths degree so i'm like oh i would i would only do science and tech um and then you know suddenly i was like oh actually it's you're already doing it is, uh, is what yeah exactly the teams that i think that's what i already do maybe i should be a bit more open to the arts and humanities but um but anyway it's it's um i'm loving you know properly looking into it and thinking about it um, yeah i don't i mean i think you share the opinion that there's still a lot to be done in terms of understanding more recent digital tech cultures right. you know, there's a lot of focus on um other kinds of things in SES, but um you know it's a very rich area and there's a lot to be said i think about um these people and these places and what they're doing <laughs> totally. I mean, well, why don't we transition to that? I mean, I want to tell people, I want them to buy the book. So I'll say that you have a Thanks. kind of nine step plan for beating hype in the end, which is somewhat related <laughs> to the, the chapters, but I thought they were interesting points. And I'll just say people should check those out. But why don't we, why don't, what are you up to? So first of all, you've also become a, a parent recently, a mom recently. So yes. you're kind of <laughs> taking a little break. But um. What do you yes. what are you thinking about doing in your doctoral work? Do you know what you you want to look at yet? Yeah, so I'm I'm I suppose I have the case study before I had the um angle, the research yeah. angle if that makes totally. sense. Um so I've been really interested in futurists, mm-hmm. specifically corporate futurists, so people who go into businesses. Um sometimes they're hired internally, but a lot of the time they're external consultants or they're individuals, freelancers. Um who Go in. Oh, sorry to pause. There's a. We have this amazing trap to stop the squirrel from getting the bird seeds, and he's so bloody intelligent. He's like on top of this. He's got all the seeds again. <laughs> oh man, he kind of deserves them. Anyway, um, let me just rewind a little bit. Sorry, I get so distracted by the squirrel. No, no, it's good. Um, yeah. So I've been really interested in corporate futurists mm-hmm. so people who go into companies and um essentially sell information or approaches in terms of thinking about the future and um that can be everything from saying in five years time you're going to get this or this is what the world's going to be like yeah. to um going in and, and sort of selling methodologies almost like consultants mm-hmm. so um you know, using things like the futures cone and, and things like that to help or scenario planning, all these sorts of, um, yeah, I guess, strategies and tools, futurism tools. And I'm very interested in them because I think that there's something um, contradictory in what they do because um, as, as any, any good STSer <laughs> will, will know from their STS 101, um, you know, the, 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 we're 
society and science is co-constructed and you know they science impacts society and society impacts science and so if you are a futurist arguably you are um not just giving information about the future you are playing a part in creating that yeah. future by giving that information about the future so there's this kind of um creative element to the job and a lot of the language of futurists is about like um desired futures yeah, yeah. which of course like rings all the bells of the tech ethicists yeah. like well what do you mean by desired and who gets to choose and who's funding this right. and desired by whom and, and all that sort of thing um so there's an element of like well yeah who why do you get to be a futurist but then there's equally like why is there even value in yeah. hiring these people um and what does it mean for a company to play a role in deciding the future for society as mm -hmm. well so i was originally really interested in like the ethics of the individuals of the futurists going into these companies and how they sort of justify um working in a corporate particularly because a lot of futurists are quite marxist a lot of them. Uh, yeah um uh -huh. you know have these like very sort of social first ideas but then go and work with a company and you're kind of like how yeah. does that uh -huh. like how does that make sense um so i started thinking about that but i then kind of i've shifted a little bit closer now to the sort of the political economy of futurists yeah. so what what how does it how do you become a futurist how do you get paid as mm -hmm. a futurist um why do some futurists get paid more than others mm -hmm. um what you know what do you sort of have to say in order to get in the door um what's the sort of community because futurism is so interesting. You've got like the academic futurist, yeah. you've got the sort of tech evangelist futurists, you've got the sort of, shall we say, activist futurists. Right. Um, you know, you've got ones that are linked to various different social causes. You've got Afrofuturism, ind indigenous yeah. futures, queer futures, all sorts. Um, and so it's like, what do they all think of each other and how do they all interact is kind of interesting mm -hmm. to me. So, um, and it's so easy to just go ah, and capitalism you know <laughs> was was futurism got to do with capitalism and there's a lot of work and um that i've been interested in around sort of the the idea of the future being inherent to capitalism like you have to have this future facing um you know you have to the future has to be something that's inherent in your um way that you go about things for capitalism to be upheld so things like credit and competition are both inherently linked to this idea of a conception of the future so um and again, then you're thinking, well, futurists are hired then to uphold capitalism, which is a little bit grand. And I'm not sure I can do a PhD just claims that. It seems a bit um, well, there's something simplistic, to that. also too complicated. Right. But yeah, it's, there is some, there's some, some work, um, like Jens Becker, or Jens Becker, I don't know how to say his name, is um, kind of the one that writes a lot about it in economic sociology, which I find really interesting. Um but yeah, I just, I haven't quite decided what I'm trying to add to that conversation. And I think the thing about doing a PhD when you're, um, you know, a mature student and you're not doing it sort of straight off a master's yeah. or off a undergrad is um, I'm sort of less interested in getting a PhD as a sort of training program, but I actually want to sort of, sounds diminishing. I don't mean that people uh, don't do PhDs for good reasons, but I think when you're um, a bit older, it's sort of more about what's the output of the thing yeah, you're really trying to sure. see. Um, particularly when I've also, you know, already had a career, it's kind of what what am I trying to add mm -hmm. here? So, um, but I think a lot of it is about why, what's this? How is the idea of the future inherently linked with things like um, 
technology and capitalism. So, like, why do you need to... So, for instance, futurists that talk a lot about technology um, are the ones that tend to be more high-profile. So yeah. if you are, like, a smart city futurist, yeah, yeah. for instance, <laughs> yeah. um, you're going to do pretty well uh, versus somebody who's talking about, like, you know, the comments. Right. But arguably, that is a very futuristic idea. Mm-hmm also a very historical idea but the point i'm making is if you're talking more about social yeah. futures as opposed to tech futures you're you're hired in different ways and you have different kinds of value so why you know i suppose that's part of my question why is the why is technology so inherent to the idea of the future why is the future inseparable to some from a value and capitalism perspective to technology so maybe i'll try and answer that <laughs> i don't know well i mean i think like you know like cancer and food this is this is one of these issues that hits us on like a very existential level. Cause I think w- especially businesses, but in all parts of our lives, we're all very concerned about the future, which is always uncertain and, and frightening for that reason. Right. We would all like yeah. to be able to get our hands around it in the, the futures world. They have all this, like we don't make predictions, we do scenarios, but they're still yeah. trying to like help people come up with strategies for, for coping with the future. But the other thing is just like, I feel like the other side of it is like management. There's a couple of good books on like management fadism and consultants because the future stuff is so hot right now. But with like a lot of like new fads that take over the management world, it's very hard to judge what efficacy looks like, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like beyond Mm -hmm. like the kind of um, subjective or in group on individual and group subjective feeling that like, oh, that was a helpful week long thing to have gone to was go to a retreat somewhere really nice and get great food and like dream up science fictional scenarios or something like that. That was useful. Well, beyond like that feeling of usefulness, it's really hard to know how to judge, you know, whether, whether this is a thing that really does help or something. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting if you look at the kind of literature. So like, you know, the the, um, the publications in futurism spaces, mm. there's a lot of focus on like essentially how to get the client to do the thing that you've suggested, i.e. how do you how do you make it more effective? Yeah. How do you um, justify the cost um, and so on and so forth? Um, so there's this real focus on efficacy. Mm. Um and it, it was something that I kind of got a bit caught up um, with when I first started. It was like, I'm not really interested in whether or not futurism works. Because yeah. I don't, you know, God, that's such a, what do we mean by it working? Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many questions around that. But I'm, I'm not really interested in that as such. I'm more interested in like the very existence of it and the fact that it's valued. Right. Which comes back to that point around, it's around buying certainty, right? That's what these companies are doing. They're buying um a level of confidence in their actions um whether that's you know investing in this new technology or um changing the business structure of um you know this uh department or um or whatever or you know hiring this person um it's like it's this idea of like being able to justify what you're doing and i think that's particularly interesting in a corporate context particularly large corporate context because they're publicly traded and they have to justify themselves so often um but also it's very measurable because profit Mm -hmm. right so whereas with government 
um, justification for decisions and measurement of decisions is sometimes a lot yeah. more difficult um, than just sheer did it make money or not. So there's there's a very I think interesting thing there around almost like the the fact that futurists exist or is kind of like linked to a feeling of trying to get rid of uncertainty and to try not have to frankly take responsibility for your decision. <laughs> yeah. Um in the same way that like consultants right. like that's what consultants yeah, yeah, totally. business, right? Like and that's mm. why they make so much you know look at the, the huge big consultancy mm. companies, right? They make a lot of money um on asymmetry of information and corporate CEOs wanting to be able to justify right. what they're doing. So I think futurists kind of play into that in some sense. I don't think they necessarily are deliberately doing that. I don't think that that's what they would say right. they're doing. And I don't think that's, um, you know, it's probably in some sense an offshoot of what they're mm-hmm. doing. Um, it's not primary. But at the same time, I do think that it has a lot of linkage with this um, kind of, I mean, we see a, a lot in kind of, datafication mm-hmm. of decision making in both in government and in corporates this idea of you can't do anything unless it's backed by data or data driven yeah. um it has to be objective it has to um be scientific yeah. um which you know we're also trying to like deconstruct that in the humanities by saying you know there's no such thing as objectivity or mm-hmm. you know it's it's actually you know decisions are made from various different things you can't just have data data is biased you know all these sorts of things are all coming together and at the same time you've got this idea of like how do we get certainty how do we know what we're doing how do we algorithmic in our decision making yeah. and so on and so forth so there's 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 a phd in there somewhere <laughs> um well, hopefully <laughs> i'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with it i think it's going to be exciting and, and great so thank you Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a lot of fun. No worries. Thank you for inviting me. And everybody who's listening, you have to go and listen to uh, Lee and Andy's uh, interview that we did on Radical Science. If you want to uh, hear me in the interview seat and Lee being asked all the questions. Right on. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out our work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum coordinator and digital humanities specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.